welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week I'm speaking to author Tom Templeton. Tom originally worked as a journalist for the Observer newspaper before retraining as a doctor when he was 30. These days, he works as a GP in Oxford. Tom's book, 34 Patients, is published on the 27th of May. The book describes 34 of the patients that Tom has encountered during his medical career, ranging from a baby to a 103-year-old woman. Beautifully written, the book is a moving portrait of humanity, which asks the reader to treat everyone with compassion. Tom, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It's really great to have you on here, and it's lovely to meet you virtually. I'm looking forward to the day when we can see you in person, because you're just down the road from us, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely, just on the other side of Oxford. Mm-hmm. So, as I do with all my guests, I'd like to start off by going back to your childhood. Where did you grow up, and what was life like for you? Um, I grew up in Lewisham in southeast London, and I was a child in the late 70s and 80s, so it was in a family of six with three siblings. So it was a very urban environment, but we also had quite a lot of freedom. I guess we were brought up in a place of benign neglect. So, yeah, that's where I was. Did you read a lot as a child? Yeah, a huge amount. I was addicted, really. Two things I used to do was get out in the garden as much as I could and also just sit with my head in a book from a very young age. There were lots of books around, and we also used to go to the local library a lot and get stuff out. So, absolutely, an avid reader from a very young age. I love hearing that. I keep hearing it time and time again in my interviews, the number of people that have memories of going to the library as a child and that little magical process where you go in with your cart and you come away with this whole pile of things that you can't wait to delve into. It's a complete revelation. It's kind of hard to believe it exists, really, because that you have this card and you just get given this magical stuff for free and then take it back and keep going. And it gives a rhythm as well to your reading because you're looking forward to the next time. I think you think you're allowed to get it out two books I don't know if that's right but you know you're desperate to get the next two so yeah it's great yeah we actually I lived in a village growing up and we had one of those mobile libraries oh yeah it's so adorable it's like the most exciting thing absolutely fantastic I don't know if they still exist anywhere I know I've not come across one or heard of one in recent times but yeah if not let's bring them back yes I agree I agree that should be our new campaign (laughs) do you remember a time when you discovered books or were they kind of always part of your life I think they were always around. I mean, my parents had lots of books and so there would have been shelves of books all around and they would also occasionally be reading them when they could find time. So yeah, they were there and we were very much with books like with everything else, just allowed to, left to explore it ourselves. So we could, most of the stuff on the shelves would have been unreadable for me as a child, but we were allowed to make our own way with it. What was the first book you remember reading? So outside of difficultness, I've, I've been thinking about this. So outside of the kind of reader books at school, I mean, the things that really jump out at me are the Asterix and the Tintin books from a very young age, which I absolutely loved. And because there are so many of them, once you love them, you can just keep on reading, keep on reading. Mm-hmm. So my memory is of going on a Friday after school, we'd get given 10p and we could go to the local sweet shop. And I think generally buy a 10p 
bag of sweets, which you know sounds so ridiculously dated, and then go to the library and get a couple of books. And it would very often be a couple of Asterix or Tintin books, and I would just be working my way through the series there. Yeah, they're great books. They're still, you know, they're still very popular these days, which I just love because it's, you know, the fact they were written so long ago, but they stood the test of time. They really do. I mean, my children read them now and are, are kind of totally into them. And so I've gone back to them. And I, even now, if I've had a really stressful day, I actually, you know, reading one of those is quite a nice way of getting into another world. And I think they're brilliant. They're, they're fantastically, in, in different ways, the two series, fantastically written, and very observant of the world and, and also of human nature. So do your kids like them as much as you did? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Love them. All of them really, really love them. And they're, they're often now to be seen at the breakfast table. I'm asking them a question and can't get their attention because their head's in one of those. And I, I can see exactly what my parents went through. That's good to hear. So did your love of reading continue through your teens? We do find a bit of a pattern where it sometimes peters off during teens or did you carry on? Totally carried on through my teenage years. In fact, say the only three years when I completely was uninterested in reading was when I did an English degree at university. That was the only time when I stopped having any interest in it at all, unfortunately. But certainly in my teens, it carried on. Then I sort of discovered the adult section of the library when I was, I don't know, nine, ten, something like that. And of course, books are uh, the kind of incredible uncensored ocean of information about the world. So whereas films have a rating system, books don't at all. You can basically get out whatever you want. So I just kind of burnt my way through all of lots of detective fiction, horror stuff. I was introduced to horror by a good friend of mine at school, Stephen King, and just yeah, carried on and carried on. And it was an important part of my life and still is to this day. Yeah, it's interesting because I was similar in terms of the age when I moved to adult fiction and talking to young people now, obviously there's this whole new genre of books now, young adult fiction, which is brilliant and it's so well written and it really kind of appeals to both young adults and also adults. But trying to get people's heads around the fact that that just didn't exist when you and I were young, it's it's really interesting because teenagers just can't fathom it. Right. I hadn't even really, although I've noticed that those are around, I wasn't sure whether I just missed them or whether, that's interesting to hear, they just weren't there, is that yeah, right? just weren't there. So 18 years of age, you took a summer job as a ward clerk at St Thomas's Hospital in London. Whilst you took the job simply to earn money, the experience had quite a profound effect on you, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. I think I'd kind of, as I say, through books, through newspapers, I was hugely interested in the outside world. And this job suddenly gave me this kind of inside. And, and the great thing about books is that they get you into people's heads. You, you kind of see people in incredible situations, often very kind of difficult situations. But I come across a bit of that in my life, but not as much as I did when I was on that ward. And I was there doing an admin job. But of course, what you had there was a ward full of patients, some of them in and out quite quickly, some of them literally dying. You know, you'd go in one day, they'd be there. And then the next day, they'd, they wouldn't. And someone would tell you they died. And some of them in very clear distress of one sort or another. So it really, where that kind of really tough end of life, I'd come across a lot in fiction, then I was really right up close to it in reality. And it was it was an eye-opener for sure. I bet it was. And at a very young age to be seeing some of that stuff firsthand. In your book, you talk about meeting Jack, who was in the hospital for a long time after having been in the pub that was bombed in Soho. Yeah. Um, you tell me about your experience with him. Yeah, that's right. So Jack had gone to the Admiral Duncan pub in Soho, a gay pub in Soho for a drink, and a bomb had gone off and, in his case, blown his leg off and it killed several people. And by the time I was in the hospital, so I think I did the job several summers in a row. By the time I was doing that summer's work, he'd been there for about three months. So he was in the kind of rehabilitation phase. 
But it was a story I knew about because I read the papers. I was obviously everybody knew about those series of bomb, terrible bombings. And so it gave a kind of, I thought about this event and then I suddenly saw the kind of reality of what it meant for this one individual involved in it. And he was really, really, you know, he was struggling a great deal, both with the kind of physical injuries, but also with the mental effects of what he'd gone through. So I used to just go and chat to him. We talk about kind of football and things like that. But his injuries and the way he was feeling was so ever present that we always, we often ended up talking about that. And I kind of got an inside look at somebody who'd just come across this completely random incident, how it had completely transformed his life. Yeah, pretty life-changing to be chatting to somebody who'd gone through that. You went on to university, as you said, you studied English literature. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not surprised what you said about it impacting your ability to read for pleasure. I hear that time and time again. <laughs> After graduating, you took a job as a newspaper journalist. When you were 30, you took the decision to retrain as a doctor. What triggered that decision? I think it was, there were kind of push factors and pull factors. I think there was something about journalism. I was, I was very lucky. I fell into a job or kind of worked my way into a job at The Observer, which is a great newspaper at a very young age. So I didn't go through the, a lot of the hard effort that people have to make to get to that kind of place. So in a way, it had happened because it had happened relatively easy for me. Maybe I was more able to sort of think about whether I really wanted to do it or not. And there were certain aspects about that job that I felt I may not want to do for the rest of my life. And one of it was just the sort of distance that although you do go out and meet people, a lot of your time is spent writing things up and kind of abstracted from the things from the things that are going on in the world. And I think I kind of felt like I got more out of being with the people at the time and felt like that was kind of maybe more my thing. And then just the random chat in a pub, a friend of mine had started retraining as a doctor, having done something completely different. And she said, oh, why don't, you, why don't you think of it? I must have said, oh, that sounds good. And, you know, from stupid comments like that come complete life-changing things like this. So that's roughly what happened. It's funny how something really small, like you say, can just have such a pivotal impact on your life, isn't it? Once certain people get an idea in their head, it's very hard to shake them. And, yeah, we kind of live in a world of our own imagining, really. Yeah. So fast forward to today, you now live in Oxford and work as a GP. For yourself and every other medical professional, the last year has been a massive challenge and continues to be so due to the coronavirus pandemic. How has it been for you personally? It's been, yeah, it's made a huge difference to the way we work. I mean, I'm very aware of the fact that the real challenge of keeping people well with COVID has taken place in hospitals. So our hospital colleagues have just been under the cosh from sometime in March last year, really in a, in a relentless way. And that's where the real incredible work has been going on. Having said that, that's then meant that a lot of stuff has come back out to general practice for us to do that we wouldn't always be doing. We've had to switch over onto the phones to do everything on the phone first, which makes things an awful lot more difficult because it's a lot easier to diagnose people when they're there in front of you. We've had to make difficult decisions based around the fact that we're trying to reduce transmission of COVID and manage things that way. So it's become very complicated. and There are a lot of different new risks on top of everything else we were doing before that kind of landed on people's shoulders. So it's very stressful and, and very difficult. On the other hand, we've been lucky. We, we've got to carry on working. We get to, a lot of the time, go into a, into our place of work and be around other people. So we, there have been benefits to being in a medical profession as well. But yeah, it's been it's, it's transformed things. That's true. I, that's really interesting because I've not considered that, but an awful lot of people are struggling because of the lack of social interaction, aren't they? Mm. And like yourself in the shop, we've been continuing the whole way through so we've had a place to go and people to see I do think it has made a massive difference but it's funny I've never really thought about it from the perspective of people that work in the NHS you must all just be such a huge support to each other 
Yeah, it's definitely made us appreciate each other, I think, even more than we did before. And, and also, when you, I think when you go through change with people, that also makes you appreciate them more. So when you're just doing the same old thing, it's, uh, it's easy to get a bit blasé. But, you know, the way, the way in which when the pandemic really kind of came to Britain in March, general practice surgery had to work out what they were going to do in advance. We didn't really get a directive from the NHS saying, now you're going to do this. We had to work it out ourselves. So there was a lot of self-reliance and mutual reliance within the surgery and within local surgeries so yeah it was, it's it's been really positive from that point of view mm. i'm sure a lot of the hospital doctors would rather have a bit of time a- apart from each other um, <laughs> yeah i'm sure they will at some point hopefully not too far in the future yeah. so you've written a book called 34 patients which as i said in the introduction is based on your experiences of 34 of your patients but obviously you have made changes to ensure that um, names and details have been changed to ensure confidentiality yeah what gave you the idea to write this book it was really just coming home from medical school coming home from work after that once I qualified and just unable to believe what I'd seen sometimes what some of the patients had had to go through or what dramatic things I'd seen or been involved with at work and I would tell versions of this story to my wife or occasionally to friends versions versions of what I'd seen anonymized versions of what I'd seen and they were as amazed as I was. What you see in medicine is people, I think you kind of get a kind of truer version of people, or you get you see people stripped away of how they perhaps want to be seen, and you see a kind of more real version of ourselves. And I saw children, adults, old people, um, all in really profound life-changing situations, and I tell these stories, and I thought after a while, actually these stories, or I think a friend of mine said, you know, you should write these down and see if a, broad, a wider group of people would like to read them i think they will i mean the fact that you've got such a breadth of people in your book is is just so fascinating what i really like about it is because they're all about individuals every chapter represents a different person so you can dip in and out of it as well which i think makes it quite an interesting read how did you choose which patients to include you've obviously seen so many over the course of your career yeah, I think they're the ones that, for whatever reason, were the most interesting to me. And there was some thought of kind of how they would, because they're spread out in order, we start with a, a stillborn baby and go with the children getting older and older through childhood into youth to middle age to old age. So there was a natural arc that I decided on for the book. And so there was a little bit of choice of patients of which stories would work well next to each other. But broadly speaking, they were the most dramatic or life-changing or intriguing situations to me. And sometimes that kind of the thing that intrigued me, uh, that interested me was the the danger that the patient was in and how close they came to death or, or kind of severe harm and what had happened to kind of help or fail to help them. But sometimes it was more the psychology of the interaction between me and the patients. So, for example, me, I think, coming close to making mistakes or certainly making errors of judgment based on the kind of shift I'd had and that kind of thing. So there were different things. You said that you wrote this book before the coronavirus pandemic. When did you start putting pen to paper and how long did it take you to put it together? So I think it was three years ago, writing the stories down for the original proposal. And I wrote about a quarter of it for the proposal over a period of about a year. And then I wrote the rest of it in a year as well. So it probably took about two years to write. Um, And I would do it whenever I could find a spare moment between work and family life. You mentioned earlier on that this was written largely before the coronavirus pandemic, but at least one of the stories does reference the fact that COVID was starting to appear. Mm. 
Was that story added in later or did it just come at the right time in terms of where you were? No, that was added in later because I was finishing it as the pandemic came, but I wasn't expecting to put one in. And then we kind of went back and added that in later. So it was originally 33 patients? I think possibly another patient was moved out to kind of make space for the COVID one. It's interesting to see because I wasn't expecting it, given that the others hadn't had it. And then suddenly that it was mentioned, it brought everything really firmly back into present. Yeah, one of the funny things about the book is because the patients get older as the book goes on, my kind of state of the actual chronological time moves around in the book. So I can be well qualified in one story and the next story be a medical student again. So there is a quite funny chronology to it, which I think kind of brings across the fact that in some ways nothing really changes with humans. It doesn't matter what, which, uh, what era, what time you're in. Yeah, I think it works really, really well. Do you have a particular story that you like the best out of all of them? I don't know if that's the right question because they're all quite difficult and traumatic. Yeah, it, it, I guess it depends. Some of them are quite funny. So whether I need cheering up or whether I want to be sort of thoroughly depressed. But I, have, I certainly have sort of patients that I was fond of. Some of the child patients I particularly loved. And also there was a young man that I think the patient who um, I saw in A&E in a very busy A&E shift who came in really just wanting a chat about his anxiety and very kind of last minute decision I just decided to do a blood test on him and asked him to let us know just just to come back an hour later to get the result of the blood test and to my amazement the blood test was off and actually it suggested something quite serious for the patient and then he'd left the slightly wrong mobile number and we just couldn't find him that left a deep impression on me because that was a A&E in the middle of the city in London where I lived for most of my life and that idea of someone coming for help and thinking they got it but then wandering off and not knowing that information was very it was difficult for me and it summed up a lot of the chaos of life in that city. Yeah. The book's due to be published on the 27th of May and we're actually recording this in March when the government's very recently outlined the roadmap for getting the UK out of lockdown. As an NHS professional, how likely do you think it is that we'll be able to follow that roadmap and that when your book comes out, we'll be out and about? <laughs> I'm definitely not qualified to answer as an NHS professional. I guess as a reader of newspapers... I think the government doesn't like saying things and then going slower. So I suspect there's a good chance that things will go that way. I think there are lots of reasons to be uh, cautiously optimistic, as everyone says at the moment, about the way the pandemic's going. But there are definitely some uncertainties around new strains and things like that that could go the other way. So, yeah, that tedious phrase, cautiously optimistic. But uh, I mean, things will open up at some point in the summer. It's just really interesting actually recording this podcast because we were chatting before we started recording about the fact that for this series, we've been fortunate enough to be able to do a load of recording in advance. So we're not mm-hmm. doing this hamster wheel of getting the episodes out pretty much as we're recording them. But the disadvantage of that is the fact that we're doing it a little bit before they go out. In some ways, it was going to be really interesting looking back on this when your book is out and seeing where how far we've come. Yeah, that's <laughs> why I tried desperately not to make a prediction so I wouldn't be completely wrong. <laughs> I just can't wait for the doors of our shop to be open and to be able to see people. But it is really interesting. People are so desperate to see others and to start the social interaction and start life as as normal. But there's so much importance about being careful as well. It's just such a strange time, isn't it? It's a very it's a very difficult balance because I think in a way the COVID pandemic has made us value some of the, the really important things in life. But at the same time, it's not allowed us to act on them. So I think people have realised that other people are you know, after kind of shelter, food and water, that is what makes life enjoyable, worth living. But at the same time, in most cases, you're not allowed to go and be with those people. So it's it's been a real double-edged sword. So I think when we things open up from it, hopefully that just, there'll be a nice dovetailing of those two things and it will be 
it'll be wonderful. Certainly, we've been doing vaccination clinics for COVID vaccination. And in the early ones, there was tremendous excitement at the in these huge queues. People would be queuing for a kind of hour or so to get their vaccine. And people just a great spirit there, partly because of what the vaccine represented in terms of the health, but partly just because they could get out and be around people. Yeah. <laughs> it was allowed. So it can't come soon enough, I'm sure. No, absolutely. Now, obviously, you've been very busy over the last year. Have you had any time to be able to relax and read at all? Yes, definitely. Reading is always the best form of escape, I think, um, outside of other people. And yeah, I have indeed. I've been reading slowly, small amounts before I fall asleep at every night. Yeah, absolutely. What was the last book you read? So the last book I read was a book called Troubles by an author called J.G. Farrell. And it was, there was, for some reason in 1970, there wasn't a Booker Prize. I don't know what that was. I don't know if you know. Well, I looked into this, actually. It was because they changed the rules that the previous year, the rules were, and up until the previous year, the rules were that the books that were included were books that were published the, the previous year before the prize. Uh-huh. And then from 1971 onwards, it was books that were published that year. Oh, I see. So this particular book was published in 1970. So every book published in 1970 just wasn't given the chance to get to that. <laughs> that's extraordinary. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, right. So later on, did they then decide that they would do a kind of... Yeah. For some reason, this is called The Winner of the Lost... Yeah, what was The Lost Man book? It was then? in 2010. They did something called The Lost Man Booker Prize, where they basically looked back on all the novels that could have been considered for the 1970 Booker Prize if it was running as it now is. And then a book was awarded, and that was this particular book. And that was this one. Right, fantastic. I'm glad they did that and that it got kind of revivified in that way, because it's absolutely, it's a fantastic book. It's a story of a man who comes out of the First World War alive, having seen the most awful carnage around him, and is sort of completely passive as a result of it. And he's referred to, I think, as the major all the way through the book, or just by his military rank. And he gets engaged by mistake to a woman. And he's not really even clear whether she wants to be engaged to him or not. And I think this is partly down to the social mores of the era, but also just because of the general state of the befuddlement he's in because of the trauma of what he's been through. And he ends up following her to Ireland to this broken down hotel, which is literally falling down. a huge old grand hotel that hasn't been had any money put into it for decades. And the book is just the next couple of years as this hotel falls down around them all. It has all these kind of permanent residents, mainly elderly women who live there, who are kind of just playing out the rest of their life. And he doesn't know whether he wants to be engaged with this woman, and the woman dies, and he just hangs around. And he's sort of drifting in this kind of crumbling hotel. And then outside of the and this is, hotel is in Wexford on the east coast, I think, of, of Ireland. And then outside of the hotel, the troubles are just building up, and hence the title. And this civil war is and kind of flaring up. And this passive major who can't really focus because of his time in this awful war just sees this going on around him and sees the way everyone acts around him and eventually kind of gets sucked into it it's a very odd book it's brilliantly written there's some fantastic lines in it i think it's a very thoughtful meditation on the way humans cope with conflict and trauma and big life events which is just to put one foot in front of the other and try and pretend they're not happening basically where did you find it how did you come across the book so uh, it came it was a recommendation from my father-in-law who runs a bookshop actually in tame just down the road from you guys yep. another independent bookshop brian pattinson and he's irish and so he has introduced me and my wife to a lot of irish literature over the years so he recommended it and yeah 
I should have known. That was a really silly question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> not, not, not everything Irish in my life comes from him, but an awful, an awful lot of it does. <laughs> Do you always have one book on the go, or are you someone that can read books concurrently? I cannot read books concurrently. So I always have about 18 different books around my bedside, some of which I want to read, some of which I've started reading. And I, I'm very bad at settling down to them. But I know they're all really good and I need to read them. So I can read books concurrently. And actually, depending on the mood I'm in, I will often kind of sometimes I don't want to read the kind of main book I'm trying to read. And I just want to read something pleasing like Tintin, as I was saying before, or P.G. <laughs> Woodhouse or um, a crime thriller or something like that. So I definitely dance around. Yeah. I'm always interested in hearing about the book that changed your life. I have a theory as a bookseller, I think that everybody that reads has got a book like this, and this could be something that impacted them from a professional standpoint or from a personal standpoint. Is there a book like that for you? And if so, what is it? Well, it's, it's a really hard question. I think I've got loads, actually. I couldn't think of a single one. I've come up with one for you, but I think there's so many at different times in my life, there are books that have changed my life. And there are also books that have sort of changed different elements of my life. So, for example, I mean, things like The Catcher in the Rye when I was young just seemed such an amazing ally in the idea that it's you against the world and that you've got to tread your own path. I read uh, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called River Out of Eden, which is an amazing um, book about the need for sort of science and how there is a difference between there is a real scientific truth to be found. Noam Chomsky's Pirates and Emperors, an incredible book about really looking at the world political situation the way it is. But the one I went for was The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I, I went for that because I think I read it when I was very young. I'm going back to when I was kind of nine or something. And we had this abridged version of it in the house. And it's an extraordinary, it's an absolutely extraordinary story. Very, very violent, really, and very brutal. And in its conclusions, very, very exciting. And so for a young boy to read it was an absolute eye opener. And I think I'm sure led me into a life of looking in books for kind of the most vivid um, and exciting kind of parts of life. Yeah, it's a brilliant story. And obviously, there's been so many different iterations of it that have been introduced to people. Obviously, you've got the book, but then you've got so many TV and film adaptations. I love the fact that it keeps reinventing itself for different people. Absolutely. I, say it's, I think there's a sort of crop of books in the 19th century where there's such strong allegories for kind of human life that they never grow old at all. There was a sort of brilliant Frankenstein portrait of Dorian Gray and, and Jekyll and Hyde. They're all just ageless. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it, to think how long ago they were written, but how relevant actually a lot of it still seems. Mm. So let's go back to your book again for a minute. Your book's obviously ready to be out there in the world. It'll be out on the 27th of May. What are your plans when it's out? Is this a one-off? Is this just you put pen to paper because these ideas came to you? Or is it, would you like to write another book at some point? I'd definitely like to write another book. It was a very enjoyable process writing this one. And it was very therapeutic, actually, to go back over those cases, think about those patients again with a bit of distance, because some of the experiences around them had been quite traumatic at the time, and you just have to carry on and see the next patient. So it was useful from that point of view, but it was also just enjoyable writing. I think it's a great thing to do. So yeah, I'd definitely like to write something else. I've got a few ideas at the moment, but I'm trying not to uh, sort of put a hex on anything. So I'm just going to wait for this to come out first and see how it does. And then see what happens. move on from there. Yeah, good idea. Are you somebody that enjoys reading? I mean, it seems like a very strange question to ask the doctor. I don't know if I've never asked this. Do you enjoy reading other medical books? I mean, there's obviously a few others that are out there. You know, Henry Marsh brings to mind. Obviously, the Adam Kay has got a very different angle. Is that stuff that you would read or, or do you steer clear of that? I mean, at one level, it's the last thing in the world I want to read when I come home from work. But I do read them. 
and I've really enjoyed them. I mean, the Henry Marsh book I, I've read, and that was I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, Adam Kay I thought was very, very funny, and several others. And I also really enjoy reading books from doctor writers from the past. I think Mikhail Bulgarkov's Notes from a Country Doctor's Notebook, I think it's called, is, a, is an absolutely brilliant book, full stop. But it, I just love the fact that it's him. He was a doctor, and he, he's writing about being a, essentially a junior doctor, just sort of starting, having been to medical school. And all the fears he has are 100 years ago in the Russian countryside are exactly the same that I felt and I know my colleagues felt in kind of urban hospitals in the 21st century. So it's, it's it can be very reassuring to read those books as well, to hear people admit to making mistakes and to admit about their fear. Because the medical profession can be, like a lot of professions, can often be quite macho. And it can be very useful to read those things. Yeah, I'm sure. It's so interesting as somebody who's not in the medical profession. I find these kind of books absolutely fascinating because it is something, especially I think here in the UK, I don't think we take the NHS for granted. We certainly don't, I think, after this last year. But I think that it's something that we've all just assumed is it's always going to be there. Mm. And when you actually read about the experiences of people that live it every day, it really just reinforces how much goes on that none of us really see at all. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you make, actually. I hadn't thought about that, but I think the fact that the NHS is just there and that we've, most of us, unless we're very old, have grown up with that being all, the case all the way through our lives, means that we have to think about medicine a bit less in this country than in other places. Where it's a matter of putting your hand in your pocket, there might be much more kind of folk medicine and sort of local medicine and trying to sort it out yourself and do we need to go? So that's a good point. I think maybe we think about it a little bit less here than other places until now, of course, where you can't get away from it. No. Well, I think your book will be a fantastic example for people to read and, and absorb the kind of things that people like you and your colleagues go through on a daily basis. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been lovely chatting to you. And I really love your book. I will be telling everyone to read it. I hope it goes very well. And thank you so much for everything that you have done over the last year and throughout your career, but um, and also all of your colleagues in the last year, particularly. Thanks, Tom. Thanks very much, Sarah. Really lovely talking to you. Thanks for having me on. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.